Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a great joy to be here. And uh, I remember smaller days for the Anchor Bible Church three years ago when uh, we were in Ukaipa and when Pastor Todd was baptized. Some of you remember that. And really the, the sort of uh, soft launch. And, uh, and then, of course, these great days. What a facility. This is, this is great. I mean, uh, you don't know this, but I brought my son Lucas, uh, who's the 18-year-old, uh, on a recruiting visit to the University of Redlands because they were recruiting him to play some football down here. He uh, ultimately chose California Lutheran University, who was also recruiting him. And in two weeks, by the way, uh, those two teams will play each other. So you can all come on Saturday night, uh, two weeks from yesterday at 7 o'clock, and watch those two teams battle it out. And my son will be the starting cornerback, uh, number eight, Lucas Quinn. And I brought him down here for a recruiting visit. That, that was just an aside. <laughs> uh, I brought him down for a recruiting visit. And so I called Todd and just said, hey, we're coming down. Uh, we want to have dinner with you. And, and he said, of course. And so we went and had our recruiting visit. And then we uh, had some dinner. And then before we left to go back on our way, it's about two hours from Redlands back up to, to Moore Park, California, where we're currently living. And Todd said, I'm so excited. Let us show you the Anchor Bible Church. And so we came to this place. It didn't look anything like this. And, but you could see what it could become. And it has become this. And that is a tremendous joy. I know you've been working hard. You might see it as a little more ho-hum because you come here every Sunday. But believe you me, when I saw what I saw last time and now what I see what I see this morning, uh, it's not ho-hum to me at all. There's a lot of hard work that you guys have poured into this place, and that is a, a wonderful thing. And none the least of which is what you've poured into each other spiritually. It's one thing to be able to pour into uh, brick and mortar and to retrofit and do all of the things that we see that are wonderful in our eyes, but it is far greater for you to be able to build into each other on a spiritual level. So this is, this is amazing. Three-year anniversary uh, to see all of you here and to know that in just, uh, if the preacher will stop preaching uh, on a, in a timely way, you'll also receive the right hand of fellowship for many, many of you. Uh, can, I, can I reveal the number? Yeah, 60. 60 of you re receiving the right hand of fellowship. And, uh, and more of you who will need to be in that process, right? Uh, several of you who will be in the next go-round. And that is a great thing. I mean, would to God that uh, the Thousand Oaks Bible Church uh, that's going to be starting in January would be able to have this kind of explosive growth. And I use that term, explosive growth, uh, in these three years. That would be a wonderful thing. We are embarking upon uh, a new ministry uh, I got so much of the bug of church planning through three years of Grace Advance, I've got to start taking my own medicine and uh, start Thousand Oaks Bible Church. We're very, very excited about that. We've lived in Ventura County now for three years. We love it there. Um, it is a wonderful place. Uh, when I drive either down to the San Fernando Valley or the Santa Clarita Valley, uh, where I have been ministering and working, uh, it's about 13 degrees hotter in those other valleys than it is in the Conejo Valley. And so uh, I really enjoy driving away from the San Fernando Valley 
and Santa Clarita and getting to Ventura County where we're only about, oh, less than uh, uh, half an hour to the beach. So, uh, so there. <laughs> Be envious. Go ahead. We are, we are excited about it. Uh, I'm just so grateful that my wife is able to be here with us this morning. Uh, we have been well served, and when Todd asked me to come and preach, I said, yes, it doesn't matter when, where, how, uh, have Bible, we'll travel. And so uh, this, is, this is going to be a wonderful time, I trust, in God's Word. And I want to talk about the subject this morning of the will of God. Now, I know, I know, you, you've got a guy who comes in, I'm sure, often, and the books that you read and the sermons that you may listen to online, and every preacher has the one sermon that he preaches all the time on how to find the will of God. Well, that's not what you're going to hear this morning, because I believe the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you can turn there, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I believe that while we could talk about how to pursue the will of God in the areas that aren't already described in Scripture, we could have an interesting discussion. Because when you're talking about pursuing the will of God, you may not always have the immediate answer. What car should I buy? What person should I marry? Whom shall I marry? What am I going to do for my profession? What's going to be my career? And those are the kinds of questions, important though they are, are not the questions that I want to answer this morning. Those are questions that God in His providence will give you the answer to as you live for His glory and as you minister to others. I don't want to talk about that kind of will of God. I want to talk about what God's will is said as to its proving, as to its reality, as to the mandate of pursuing the will of God. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I want to do a little bit of an inverted exposition this morning because I want to start with the last phrase of verse 2 in Romans 12. And here's what it says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here it is. Here's that phrase. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you see that phrase, so that you may prove, that ends or that begins with that second phrase there of verse 2, so that you may prove, or maybe the word in your translation is test. How many of you have test in your Bibles? Okay, test. Or maybe even in the marginal translation, it may even say approve. Okay, some of you are nodding. So either prove or test or approve, somehow the Apostle Paul is so sure about what the will of God is, he says a couple of things about it. Number one, he says that you and I are to prove it. And then secondly, he says, I know what it is. And if we were to query the Apostle Paul and ask him, well, what is it, Paul? What is the will of God? He says, it is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you're like me, you're saying, but that's still not good enough. Because if the will of God is to be proved or tested or approved by us, that's one thing. And if it is good and acceptable and perfect, 
that's another thing, and that's helpful, but what is it? What is the will of God that is so good, that is so acceptable, and that is so perfect? Well, I believe the answer is verse 1. Paul there says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Beloved, that's the will of God. If you want to know what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is, of course, a very famous passage, you've probably heard someone preach on it. Maybe Pastor Todd has preached on it already. If you want to know the will of God in that overarching sense, in the sense that I really need to know what God's proving, His testing, the approved plan is for His will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, here it is, that you and I are to present our bodies, which is another way of just saying our lives, the totality of our lives, our not just our physical bodies, but our, our mentalities as well, our thinking, our purposes. We are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, we'll unpack this in the message, but I just want to start in our introductory time by saying that the will of God chiefly, primarily, is that you and I live sacrificial lives, that our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our consciences, even the, the physical part of, a, part of us, what we do with our physical lives, is to be lived in such a way that we indeed are proving what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, and that is that we should live holy lives. If you want a, if you want a thesis statement and it may actually even be presented to you, I think I sent it to Pastor Todd, and it's this, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And the answer is to live your lives as a living sacrifice. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. That's the will of God. I mean, I may not know with the kind of specificity as though it's certain and it's unalterable whom I should marry, what career I should pursue, what, what are those gray areas that I don't know with certainty? But one thing I do know with absolute certainty, the Apostle Paul says, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is that you and I live sacrificial lives for His glory. And if we do that, I believe those other areas that are not specifically revealed in Scripture will come to us by His providence. He will reveal those things to us. He will lead us to those areas that we all are very, very concerned about. But I would say that we should spend less time trying to figure those things out and more time on what it means to being a living sacrifice for God's glory so that all of those other things will come inevitably as a result of being that living sacrifice. You see? We spend probably less time 
figuring out how to be a living sacrifice unto God and more time trying to figure out all those other things that we want the will of God to be than we otherwise should. We should reverse that. We should say, my goal, my drive, my desire, my pursuit, my will is to pursue the will of God as a living sacrifice, and I believe that in God's love and mercy and grace, He'll reveal all of those other things to me in time, and I'll trust Him with that. We ought to spend far more time pursuing this, this living sacrifice as a Christian than we do trying to figure out all those other things, because those other things, by the love of our Heavenly Father, He'll grant those things to us. He'll give those things to us. He, he doesn't want to hide His will in those less certain areas from us. He doesn't want to do that. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants us to find the right mate. He wants us to find the right career. He wants us to choose the right house. He wants us to be involved in all of these very important areas, but only after the priority of our commitment to live our lives as a living sacrifice, because that kind of will of God is good, and it's acceptable, and it's even perfect. So that's the thesis of our morning together, okay? Now, with that in mind, I want us to dig into Romans 12, 1 and 2 and maybe discover some things that you might not have thought of before. So let's begin. And I've got two major principles, two major outline points that I want to give you this morning. The first is the what of proving the will of God. The what of proving the will of God. That's verse 1. And then verse 2 Part of that which I read but haven't yet explained is the how of proving the will of God. So the what of proving the will of God and the how, that's verse 2. Let's dig into verse 1, the what of proving the will of God. Look back with me at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, or therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, it's very important that that word therefore be talked about because something that Paul has said prior to that word is what he's now tying into what he's about to say in verses 1 and 2. You know, you've heard... Preachers and exegetes say, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore is here because he wants us to wrap up everything that he has said in the first 11 chapters. In fact, in Pastor Todd's prayer this morning, he actually mentioned that. All of these mercies of God. So whatever he wants to tell us in verses 1 and 2, he wants to wrap up everything he said in the prior 11 chapters. Now, we will not be going over everything that he's talked about in the first 11 chapters. Aren't you glad about that? But we do need to know what he's referring to here when he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He says, as a result of what I've just told you in the 11 chapters about the mercies of God. And by the way, do you know that when Paul 
had this letter read to the Romans, not just the first time, but probably undoubtedly many, many times. Do you know that this letter was read to the congregation in one setting in their hearing? The entire book of Romans. In fact, when I preached through the book of Romans at the Bible Church of Little Rock, we finished our exposition of, I think, four and a half years of looking through the book of Romans together. And then I said to myself, wouldn't it be a neat thing as we finish the last message that we have a special service in that we will read the entire book of Romans together to finish the capstone of all of our study. And that's exactly what we did. You remember that? We actually had 16 chapters of Romans. We actually had 16 elders at the time. And so each elder took one chapter and we had a service, just a special service on a Sunday night in which we just read the entire book of Romans together chapter by chapter, with each man finishing and another man would come up and read the entire letter. It, it was a marvelous experience, and that's the way they did it in the first century church. Now, certainly there were some explanations of those things, but if you were to have read the therefore of Romans 12.1, they would have known because that letter was read with the first 11 chapters coming before that, they would have known what those mercies are. Do you see it listed there? by the mercies of God. We're sort of head scratchers. Well, what's he talking about with regard to that mercy? What does he specifically mean by the mercies of God? I urge you by the mercies of God. Well, I'm going to give you a few in those 11 chapters, a few ideas, a few hints about what he's talking about with regard to that mercy. So go back to Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Romans 2 4. This would be an example of what he means by mercies. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Here's what he says in Romans 2, 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Just insert the word mercy instead of the word kindness because they are synonyms. The kindness of God. The mercy of God. So he's saying in Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the mercies of God? In other words, you shouldn't. You shouldn't because it's the very mercies of God that actually led you to repent of your sins, to come to Christ. And so I urge you, he says in chapter 12, verse 1, by the very mercy of God's kindness leading you to repentance. How about chapter 5? Chapter 5, verse 6. For while, Paul says, we were still helpless, at the, right, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see your name in there? You see your own situation in there? I do. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You could just read verse after verse after verse, and you don't have to wonder about the mercies of God at all. Because he's telling you explicitly what those mercies are. You've been saved. You've been reconciled to God. 
Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's the mercy. That's the sheer, unadulterated mercy and grace of the living God to bring you and I to faith in Jesus. Reconciled. We, we were enemies with God. We, we were the enemies of God. And what's worse, He was our enemy. We were on the enemy list. And even while we were in that position, the Bible says Christ died for us. He atoned for our sins. He died on that cross. The Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult. That's that's the word rejoice. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See the word grace there? That's that's the mercy of God. That's what God has done to provide the mercy that we desperately need. That's the mercy of God. No wonder, Paul says, therefore, as a result of that mercy, the mercy of the grace of Jesus Christ, who in righteousness extends that righteousness to you and to me, we are therefore actually bestowed eternal life. That's mercy. I actually don't see some of you smiling. Do you you not marvel at the grace of God, at the mercies of God? Look at at chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift. This is a gift of grace, of mercy. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, Or the man who runs, because if you willed it, you'd never gain it, because your will is so shot through with sin. And if you ran for it, you'd run forever, since you could never run to it in your own strength. It is not dependent on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has what? Mercy. 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 There it is. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, therefore... Based upon these mercies that I've told you, in 11 chapters you ought to do something. You should be motivated by this mercy. Look at verse 23 of chapter 9. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Look at chapter 11, verse 22. It's amazing. Behold then... That, that, that behold, hey, listen up. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. God is so kind. He's so merciful, gracious. This is, this is so magnanimous, this grace to the Apostle Paul that he ends chapter 11. Look at verse 30. For just as once you were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown what? 
mercy because of their disobedience, the disobedience of the Jews. So these also now have been disobedient, the Jews, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. In other words, the Jews were originally extended the olive branch of mercy. They rejected it, and so God brought in the Gentiles, and when he brought in the Gentiles, he made the Jews jealous because of it. And when he bestowed mercy on the Gentiles, it was so at one time they could become so envious of that mercy, they would reach out for it, and they would be granted it. And he says, oh my, all of this, according to verse 32, God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. That's all elect Jews. That's all elect Gentiles. Verse 33, oh, Paul says, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul cannot stop talking about the mercies of God. But that's his... That's his one drumbeat. He's a one-note Charlie. This is it. Mercies of God. Mercies of God. God slammed him down on that Damascus road and and raised him up again and said, look, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer, but I'm also going to show you my sheer mercy. Now you know what's in his heart. Now you know why he says what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. And by the way, just strip the the chapter and verse designations out of your Bible, right? Because they weren't there in the original. They're not inspired. So mercy, 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 chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 11. And then he says, without a break, without any contextual break, therefore, what I've just been telling you about all of these mercies, you're to do something. And what does he say they're to do? He says, I urge you, I urge you, It's sort of less than a command, but more than a wish, right? It's less than a command. He's not commanding you to do it. He's saying what you ought to be doing as a Christian is only what you ought to be doing as a result of what you've received. In other words, it is inconceivable to the Apostle Paul that if you and I, as he himself received this this magnanimous mercy of God that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned, that we haven't merited, that we shouldn't receive, but we have received it, even though we didn't do anything for it, we couldn't work for it, we couldn't be granted it because of our running and our willing and all of our effort, We actually received it by the sheer mercy of God. If you've received that, then you ought to want to do something as a result. Not be in a static position. Not to coast. Not to sit back and say, I've been the recipient of mercy. I think I'll just bask in that a while by doing nothing. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying what you ought to be doing is taking in all of these mercies of God. And by the way, does it not appear in the plural there, these mercies of God, these mercies of God. I urge you, therefore, to do something about it. So what does he say we ought to do? Three things, three things. You want to know the what of proving the will of God? Here they are. To present your bodies, three things, a living sacrifice, 
a holy sacrifice and an acceptable sacrifice. Now, it's not necessarily neatly written that way in your English translation, but all three of those things are adjectives that describe what a sacrifice is based on the mercy of God. You are, he says, urged in the strongest kind of language. I urge you about everything that you've just seen or heard read in your midst that you ought to be a living, you ought to be a holy, and you ought to be a, an acceptable sacrifice unto God. What does he mean by you ought to be a living sacrifice? Well, you don't have to find this out from the Greek text. You can get it from the English instead of being a dead one, right? You say, well, what's a, what's a dead one? Well, he's borrowing all this language from the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? And the Old Testament sacrificial system was something like this, that when a worshiper came to God with his animal sacrifice, that animal was to be this perfect lamb, right? No spot, no blemish. And that, that animal sacrificer would take this, this lamb, this sheep, or whatever was required at that moment, and they would take that animal and they would offer it up by placing their hand on the head of that am animal as a symbolic transferral of the sin of that person's life onto that unsuspecting, innocent, spotless, blameless lamb. Now, does that conjure up anything in your minds from the New Testament about who that spotless, blameless lamb is? Of course, it's Jesus. And so this symbolic transference of all of my sin onto the head of that animal is my way of saying, I get to continue living. And that animal will meet his what? His death. On my behalf. Now, the New Testament makes it very, very clear, especially the writer to the Hebrews, that all of that sacrificial system was never in and of itself intended to be the perfect solution. It's not the perfect solution because it does not have the perfect spotless lamb other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was sinless. No one was suggesting, including God himself, when this sacrificial system was instituted, that that lamb was going to be the ultimate and forever and sufficient sacrifice. It was never to be done that way. Writer of Hebrews says, with all of the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats, it was never designed to ultimately and fully and finally take away the sins of mankind. Never. It was pointing to something else. And the greater reality is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he describes in these first 11 chapters all of these mercies, and he keeps saying, the Lord Jesus, Jesus, the righteousness of Christ, the, the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement of Christ, Christ being the one who in God's place justifies the ungodly so that God could declare that person justified by faith in Jesus. All of those things are pointing to Him so that as I'm living my life as a sacrifice, I'm pointing to the living one as a living one. Because He died, He was buried, and He was raised again on the third day. And so when I die spiritually, 
with my sins in the symbolic transferring of my sins onto Christ, the perfect sacrifice. He died in my place. He died in my stead. And when he was buried, I was buried. And when he was raised from the dead, I was raised from the dead so that his life is my life. His death was my death. His resurrection body is the the down payment that I too will one day be raised from the dead. That symbolic transference in the mind and will of God is now an absolute demand for you and for me to live my life, live my life, a living sacrifice. That's what he means, a living sacrifice. And you ought to want to do it because of all these mercies that you've received. You ought to be saying in your heart right now, why shouldn't I live my life as a living sacrifice unto God because of all the mercies I've received? Why wouldn't I? And there's, there's, not a, there's not a good answer for why you wouldn't. Secondly, he says, a holy sacrifice. Holy sacrifice. He means by holy that when God creates a person, the Bible teaches that this language of a holy sacrifice means that God's holiness, His supreme goodness, takes his subjects, and he owns you. He created you, and he owns you. You are his personal and exclusive possession. That's what he means by being holy. It means that you and I are those subjects of the king in his kingdom, whereby he says, You do what I tell you to do, not in a mean way, not in an ugly way, a loving, gracious, authoritative way. I own you, I created you, I possess you, you are mine. And therefore, I want you to be, as my exclusive and personal possession, someone who lives his life in a God-honoring, holy way. That's what he means. You're a living sacrifice. The symbolic transference of your sin onto the sin of the spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a holy sacrifice. That's why it says in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, Be holy, for I am holy. I I own you. Now, I know that in our day and age, there are people who would be looking at this kind of language and say, Nobody owns me. Nobody owns me. I'm in charge of my life. I can do, if I'm a woman, what. I want to do with my body. You ever heard that in the abortion movement? It's my body. I can do with my body what I want. God says, not so. I created your body. I possess your body. I animate your body. The breath of life coming into Adam so that he became a living being. That's what God says He does, and He's the only one who can create life, and He's the only one who sustains life, and He's the only one who owns life. The Lordship of God over your life, the Lordship of Christ over your life. You you have to be like what He is, holy. You have to be a holy sacrifice. And then He says, acceptable to God, an acceptable sacrifice. You see your marginal translation there? Well-pleasing, well-pleasing. That's what God says to us. 
we are to be. You are to be acceptable. And what he's doing is he's borrowing in all of this sacrificial language of the Old Testament that which God accepted into his nostrils. Do you remember when they would burn the animal? Once the sacrificial transference had been made and once that priest took possession of that animal and that animal was then sacrificed and then it said the smoke did what? It went upward and when it did, the Bible says it went up to the very nostrils of God, not literally speaking, but it went up to the nostrils of God and God determined whether or not it was acceptable to him. If it was, God says, this is well-pleasing in my sight. Well-pleasing. And so, in the New Covenant era, when someone is to live out their lives as a sacrifice, he's to be a living sacrifice, he's to be a holy sacrifice, and he's to be an acceptable, well-pleasing sacrifice. And no sooner does he say that than he says this, which is your spiritual service of worship. What does he mean by that? Now that's a tough phrase, which is your spiritual service of worship. What does he mean by that? Spiritual service is the Greek word logikon, logikon. It comes from that Greek word logos, which means word, right? In the beginning was the logos, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. This is logikos. It's a form of that word, but what does he mean by this? Well, it could either be one of two things. Number one, logikos could mean something like this. Your your reasonable or your rational service. In other words, it's only logical that you be this kind of person, a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice because of all these mercies. And in a sense, I've already described that for you, right? It's only reasonable, it's only rational that you should do this because of all these mercies of God. It's only reasonable that you should be a living a holy and an acceptable sacrifice because of all these mercies that God has portrayed on you, that He's given you, that He's blessed you with. It's, it's only reasonable you should be doing this. That, that may be what Paul is referring to there. However, it could be something like this. It could be that what he's referring to is he's getting behind the very actions of a person to their heart. Do you know that, for instance, the prophecy of Isaiah the prophecy of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Hosea, the prophecy of Amos. Just those four examples alone would prove that there are times when the prophets indicted the children of Israel for doing things like this. You praise me with your lips, but your hearts are what? Far from me. That's one good example. He might be saying something like this. Look, I know that you say you are being a living sacrifice. You're being holy. You're, you're well-pleasing to God with the outside. But on the inside, not so much. You're coming to the worship service. You're walking in. You sit down. You have a Bible. You bow your head when prayers are made to God, but your heart's not in it. You're doing something with your bodies. You're here this morning. You come regularly. You give during the offering. You bow your head. You read your Bible, but your heart's not in this. That could be what he's referring to. You say, which do you think? The first explanation you gave or the second? Here's my answer. I have no idea. 
I have no idea. Might even be a combination of both. Maybe it's a little bit more obscure because it's referring to two things in the one. It could be something like this. You ought to be a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice both on the inside as you are on the outside, and that is your only reasonable, rational conclusion based on all the mercies of God you've received. It could be something like that. If you had to pin me down, I'd probably say, It's more the idea of rational, reasonable, logical in this sense. If you have undergone all these mercies of God, everything that He's bestowed you with, you are so humbled, you are so contrite, you are so repentant, you are so enveloped in the love and grace and mercy of God that when it comes to Paul urging you to do something, you say, I'm first in line. I'm first in line. It's, It's only reasonable that I do this. Of course it's my logical response to a God of mercy. Of course it is. Now, that's the what, approving the will of God. How about number two as we close? Number two, the how of you doing it. I mean, up to this point, I've only described what you're supposed to do. Living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. You say, all right, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all in. I've bought into what you've said. I know it's reasonable. I know I've got to do it from the inside, not just my, my life movements. I've got to do it from the heart, and it's only reasonable, rational. I got it. But how? How? Here's how. Look at verse 2. Here's one that's negative and then one that's positive. Do not be conformed to the image of this world. That's the negative. And Paul has to start with the negative, doesn't he? He has to to start with what we're doing that we should not do. We have to say no to the things that we're allowing our lives to do. Why? Because there are certain things that are going to mitigate against our being a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. There are things that are fighting against us to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. And what is that? The world. The world. It fights against us every single day not to be a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. Anybody uh, raise the right hand and say, yeah, I live there. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you mean. Whether it's media, whether it's other persons, whether it's yourself and Satan and his hosts. I mean, this is a formidable group. This is a formidable group against us. Satan and his demon hosts, people around you, unbelievers, the world, and even your own temptations even your own thoughts, even your own predisposition to say, I know that's what it says. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. I know that's the truth. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I want to. But I want to. Because I want to. You say, why? It's not reasonable. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's not based on the mercies of God. You ought not to want to do that because... It's not the presentation of your entire life as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. It's it's not what God wants you to do. And we have all of those things fighting against us so that at times 
even as Christians, even genuine Christians, we say this, I know it's not what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sin. Or sometimes you're just caught unawares, like Galatians 6.1, and you fall into a trap. And then you look around and you say, what have I been doing? What have I been thinking? Why am I doing this? Why am I making these choices? And the answer is because you have conformed yourself, your thinking, to this world. So here's the negative prohibition. Here's the how of being a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world. Conformed. It's, it's the Greek word schema. Do not be poured into the scheme of this world. Do, do not fall into the dictates of this world. Anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-Christ-like attitudes, anti-virtue. Even sometimes when it's, when it's painted over with what looks like virtue, but it's really vice, when right seems wrong and wrong seems right, and it can be very subtle at times, but the, the prohibition here is do not be poured into the mold of this world. That's the how. And this is really practical. This is Paul getting to the very practical level. My friend Wayne Mack, in his book, A Fight to the Death, says it this way. They say that ignorance is bliss. That may be true when it comes to knowing how many calories are in an ice cream cone. But when it comes to things that are really important, ignorance is dangerous. Ignorance is certainly dangerous when it comes to the subject of sin. One of the reasons we play with sin is that we are ignorant about how dangerous it is. To make matters worse, we are ignorant about how ignorant we are about sin. We know sin is bad, but the way that we live makes it clear that we do not know how terrible it really is. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. I fear that there are multitudes of Christians who, in fact, are ignorant of his schemes. You say, does that mean we ought to study Satan? I thought we were supposed to sort of get away from him as fast as we could. If you study your Bible, you'll know a lot about Satanology, the study of Satan, and demonology, the study of demons. And angelology, the study of angels, the good angels, the godly angels. You must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. If you are, he will unwittingly trip you up and you will fall into sin. Listen again to Dr. Mack. What doctrine might Satan want to attack most? It is no surprise that Satan is relentless in his attack on what the Bible teaches about sin. By simply tampering with the doctrine of sin, he is able to make chaos of the Christian faith. If he can get us to think erroneously or even superficially about sin, he has us where he wants us. He knows that if we have a wrong understanding of sin, we will have a wrong understanding of everything else. And I love the Puritan Thomas Brooks who wrote this great book. If you have not read it, you should read it. It's in Puritan Old English, but it has been updated a bit. You ought to read it. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And the Puritan Thomas Brooks says this, Satan knows 
that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And so he presents it, that is sin, to us, not in its true colors, but painted over with the name virtue, that we may more easily be overcome by it. That's true. That's, that's the design of Satan. That's his schemes. J.I. Packer writes, Sin's strategy is to induce a false sense of security as a prelude to a surprise attack. Sin is always at work in the heart. A temporary lull in its assaults means not that it is dead, but that it is very much alive. John Owen says, Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Sin, the world. Paul says, don't be conformed to it. That's how you can be a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. And then he says, positively in verse 2 of Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be schematized by the world, he says. Don't fall into Satan's schemes, but be transformed. That's the Greek word metamorpho. It's metamorphosizing your mind, changing your mind, transforming your mind. Not being poured into the world's mold of how all of its thinking points will influence you, but actually having your mind altered radically your mind transformed you've probably been a person like i was in my conversion i never grew up in the church in fact my mom was a jehovah's witness and and when i came to christ when i had that true regeneration when my life was radically altered at my conversion it was as though this conforming nature of the world I was, I was perfectly formed in all of my mental processes with the world. And when I was converted, my whole mind was beginning to be radically transformed, changed. There was a metamorphosis that went on. And it continues to this day. And that's why I used conformed and transformed. You see, even in the English terms, conformed. No, no, not conformed transformed it it translates me into a realm of a new existence totally and completely so that my mind is renewed my mind's renewed here's what we might say if you want to know what the will of god is here it is here's the translation of romans 12 1 and 2 because of the obvious and abundant mercies of God, you prove the will of God by presenting to God a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to Him, refusing to be conformed to this world, being rather transformed by the constant renewal of your mind, thus proving in the first place what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I mean, it's almost as though this is a merry-go-round. And what he says is, you want to prove what the will of God is? Being a living sacrifice. In what way, Paul? Being 
living, holy, and, and acceptable to God. And how do I do that, Paul? By not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of my mind. And Paul, when that happens, what am I doing? You are proving the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, what is the will of God? That you be a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. It just keeps chasing its own tail. It just keeps going around and around and around, and it's telling us in clear terms how to live the Christian life. You say, isn't there so much more involved in that? Yes, there is. But in very simple terms, if I were to leave you today, and I think I shall, you and I, as professing Christians, are to prove the will of God by living holy, acceptable lives, proving that will by not conforming our, ourselves to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. These are two short, seemingly simple verses, are they not? But radical in their implications. Radical. Is this your heart? Is this your life? Is this your intent? Is this your purpose? Is, is, this, is, is this what you're saying? I must do this or I die. This is, this is our fight to the death. And God will use us. God will grow us. God will transform us if we commit ourselves to these truths and thank Him for doing that in our lives by His glory and for not only our individual good, but for the good of the Anchor Bible Church of Redlands. Let's bow together in prayer. With your heads bowed, I want to read a devotional as I close from our dear friend Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he says. This is the morning and evening devotions of Spurgeon. And if you haven't read this, maybe this will be a spur for you to do so, morning and evening. This is from Romans 12 too. This is what he says. If a Christian can by possibility be saved while he conforms to this world, at any rate, it must be so as by fire. Such a bare salvation is almost as much to be dreaded as desired. Reader, would you wish to leave this world in the darkness of a desponding deathbed and enter heaven as a shipwrecked mariner climbs the rocks of his native country? Then be worldly. Be mixed up with Mammonites, money lovers, and refuse to go without the camp bearing Christ's reproach. But would you have a heaven below as well as a heaven above? Would you comprehend with all the saints what are the heights and depths and know the love of Christ which passes knowledge? Would you receive an abundant entrance into the joy of your Lord? Then come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing. Would you attain the full assurance of faith? You cannot gain it while you commune with sinners. Would you flame with vehement love? Your love will be damped by the drenchings of godless society. You cannot become a great Christian. You may be a babe in grace, but you can never be a perfect man in Christ Jesus while you yield yourself to the worldly maxims and modes of business of men of the world. It is ill for an heir of heaven to be a great friend with the heirs of hell. 
It has a bad look when a courtier is too intimate with his king's enemies. Even small inconsistencies are dangerous. Little thorns make great blisters. Little moths destroy fine garments. And little frivialities and little rogueries will rob religion of a thousand joys. O professor, professing Christian, too little separated from sinners, you know not what you lose by your conformity to the world. It cuts the tendons of your strength and makes you creep where you ought to run. Then for your own comfort's sake and for the sake of your growth in grace, if you be a Christian, be a Christian and be a marked and distinct one. Father, what a good conclusion for us being living and holy and acceptable sacrifices, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And when we are that distinct and marked Christian that Spurgeon refers to, we are proving the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In Jesus' name, amen.